Sundays on the East End. This is Bridget Leroy. And this is Alex Sokolow. And uh, we have a, an interesting guest today. Peter Guimaras uh, is going to be joining us, but uh, it, it kind of got us talking, Sock, about um, food and stuff like that. Well, yeah, well, well Peter, Peter uh, for people that, that may know or may not know, but Peter uh, has a kind of amazing uh, career in uh, hospitality and in uh, opening up and being part of um, uh, social venues, uh, nightclubs, restaurants, comes from a family that actually, uh, you know, and I'll say back in, back in the old country for, for, for Peter and for you, not for um, me. Not your but, old country, but, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, that, that uh, had a restaurant in Milan and has kind of grow, grown from there. Uh, but has also been, uh, I think, kind of an icon- iconoclast. Uh, he's been on television uh, in, in the Real Housewives uh, series. And uh, he has thrown his hat in the ring uh, to, to run for mayor, uh, which is a thing that um, I think a lot of people talk about. Let, let, let's clarify. Not mayor of Southampton Village. Not mayor of East Hampton No, mayor, mayor of New York City. Southampton is like the sixth borough. Uh, this is like uh, mayor of New York City. He's Connecticut, Connecticut born and raised, uh, but really a New Yorker. Uh, and uh, our show does kind of beam out to to Connecticut as well. So uh, this is a chance to kind of really talk to somebody who's been carving his own path. I will tell you, Bridget, I know you come from a restaurant family uh, and I've always uh, kind of enjoyed hearing you talk about um, your, your dad and, and the various restaurants that, that he uh, launched and and how, it, what's the phrase that he said? It's really like the greatest art form, right? And it's, it's the only, uh, a restaurant is the only uh, arena that incorporates all five senses. Uh, and I, you listen, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I grew up in Maxwell's Plum, Tavern on the Green, Russian Tea Room. They've named 67th Street after my dad. I mean, not many people can say, but yeah, so the food was a way of connecting in my family. Um, you know, my mom and my dad uh, divorced when I was very young. They stayed friends forever, but my mom's Italian. My dad is not, <laughs> but he was the restaurant guy. But my mom always, like, we always had people over and, and food was always like, my mom would make a big lasagna or a gnocchi. She makes the best gnocchi in the world. We may have a discussion about that later with Peter, but my, as far as I'm concerned, my mom makes the best gnocchi. And uh, I have the old uh, gnocchi board that my great-grandfather brought from Palermo. I mean, it's like, you know, we, we food, like, I, like knowing that Peter was coming on today, and I know that food isn't all we're going to talk about, but there's nothing I love talking about, as you know, Sock, more than food and connection and family. Um, yeah, especially, you know, like we're in the holiday season and, and, you know, the news seems to just get, you know, kind of worse or, you know, we, as far as COVID, as far as, you know, what, what it's doing to, to all of our rituals and stuff. Yeah. But the one thing that I think is so important is, is how you connect with your loved ones, how you connect with your friends. 
And nine times out of 10 with, with me, it is over a meal. It is over a, a cocktail or a night out. It's over. And, and how you navigate that through this period, through Thanksgiving to Christmas, I think is a really interesting thing as well, because we, we have to keep living. And the city, and the city of New York uh, needs, you know, uh, needs to keep functioning and living as does the East End of Long Island. So I think that's going to be an interesting thing to hopefully touch on as well. Well, also, I mean, and I'm sure Peter will will, will talk about this as well, is that uh, the hospitality industry in New York City makes, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I'm going to say like 40% of its nut basically on Christmas parties and, and parties that, um, you know, ba- like the last two months of the year from, from uh, Thanksgiving to New Year's is a huge nut for a lot of restaurants. And this year it's, it's evaporated. So that's going to be a very interesting discussion to have as well. And I, and I just want to know why anybody wants to run for public office. Yeah, that too. <laughs> well, we'll get to that. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. And you're coming to you on 88.3 WLIWFM, Long Island's only NPR station. We will be right back after this. Serving Eastern Long Island and Coastal Connecticut, this is 88.3 WLIWFM and WLIW.org slash radio in Southampton, New York, Long Island's only NPR station. Your source for news, music, and entertainment, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Come fly with me, let's float down to Peru. In Lama Land, there's a one-man band, and he'll toot his flute for you. Come fly with me, let's take off in the blue. Uh, we're back Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolov. And our guest, Peter Gomeris. Welcome, Peter. Thank you so much, folks, for having me on this rainy, miserable Monday in New York City, but I'm happy to be here. Right. Well, you know what? It's, it's, you're happy to be anywhere. So, so uh, in, in the break, uh, uh, we already have uh, made a mistake verbally. You were not born in Connecticut. I don't want to uh, get to trouble. I do not want to offend any of the Connecticut, Connecticutites. Is that the right word? Sure. <laughs> we'll say, no way that guy was never born in Connecticut. Right. I was actually born in Lisbon, Portugal. Wow. I came to uh, this country when I was two years old. We settled in Hackensack for about 11 minutes, which was all I needed. <laughs> and then we, uh, we shot across the line to Hartford, Connecticut. And that's where I was, uh, that's where I was brought up, was in uh, the south end of Hartford. And, and did, your, so did, had friends. did your family, so your, your grandma opened up the restaurant in Milan? Uh, my, partner's, uh, my partner's mother, okay. Beatrice Ruggieri, opened up for first restaurant in Milan in 1926. Okay. There's no blood between me. It's my partner's mother. Oh, okay. You could cut your fingers and do like, you know what you did with your best friend, like become blood brothers, like. Listen, we still talk to each other after all these years where most of the other family members do not. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I think we're doing okay. Some relationships are thicker than blood. And so. relationships should never have started. Right, but so, but, but so then you're born in Portugal, uh, but your, your restaurants have always been Italian. Well, not, not always. My restaurants with the Biche group and with Roberto uh, Ruggieri 
are all Italian, but we've done some American fare. I actually even had a Portuguese restaurant named after my mother Dolce in Hartford, oh, wow. near the Civic Center, back when the Hartford Whalers used to be in town. <laughs> yeah. So we have different type of cuisines, but the major brand, the Biche brand, is all Northern Milanese food from uh, Milan, Italy, correct? Well, my one of my uh, great-grandparents was from the Tyrol region, so that's like Northern Italy. Uh, the Alps and stuff like that. It's great. Give, give us some, I mean, uh, I have not been lucky enough to go to Biche Cucina, but I've heard about it and I've heard that the food is really, really great, like real Italian food. It better be. My uh, my salary in here between my Italian chefs is killing me. So if it's not great, <laughs> I'm going to hire some pimple-headed kid out of high school to cook and save my money. But yeah, it, it is great food. You know, Beach Eight came to uh, New York in the, in the 1980s. It was an iconic Italian restaurant. We served people from Frank Sinatra to Billy Joel to, uh, you know, the Rat Pack. It was just a phenomenal place to uh, come to the city on the weekends and, and work there and see all the, all the celebrities. And then we ended up closing in 2011. We couldn't get a union contract to keep us in business. So we actually moved out of the city in 2012. And then recently, three years ago, we came back into the city after I worked out all our union difficulties and issues. And we opened up on 55th Street, and it's been terrific. Well, it was much better before COVID. Right. But, yeah, yeah, obviously. And then before we, we pop into COVID, like the restaurant business, a lot of people kind of grow up dreaming about owning a restaurant. Anybody that likes to cook kind of for their families or cook themselves, oh, you should open a restaurant. Right. That seems like it, it's it, when you actually do it. What, what were the biggest things when you made your first jump, right? The first restaurant uh, that you uh, owned and operated was in Connecticut, right? Correct. And, and what was the, uh, where did the rubber hit the road there for you as far as like, what does it mean to actually be a restaurateur? So here's the thing, you know, owning a restaurant is like owning a boat, right? They tell you the, the best two days of owning a boat is when you buy it and when you sell it. Well, in the restaurant business, is when you open it up and when you get out of it, right? <laughs> I, I love the restaurant business, but, you know, honestly, I didn't want anything to do with it. You know, when I went to college and I graduated, I said, I'm not going to stay in the restaurant business. I see the late hours. I see uh, the, all the pitfalls, you know, too much drinking, uh, too many women, too much wine, too much songs. I think they wrote a song about that, right? Too many wine, song, and women. At least one. <laughs> at least at least one, yeah. So I wanted nothing to do with it. So I got involved in construction. I started building houses in Connecticut. I built over 100 homes in Connecticut. Wow. My second project right out of college was one of a prominent Italian family in Connecticut asked me to build their Italian restaurant. Wow. Before it was finished, something happened to the family, and I got stuck with this restaurant, right? So I'm um, looking at this 8,000 square foot newly built restaurant by me. They can't afford to finish paying me, so I'm stuck with it, right? So I asked my family members, I said, what do you think I should do with this? And my mother says to me, do you know what this is? I go, yeah, ma, it's an 8,000 square foot restaurant that I'm not gonna get paid on. I know exactly what this is. She said, that's a sign from God. I said, from God. I said, all the problems in the world, God has to concentrate on my little restaurant. She goes, yes, you always wanted to stay out of the business, and here you are. I said, so what do you think I should do, ma? You know what to do. And I kept it. And you named it Dolce. Uh, that one actually was named Blue Smoke oh, okay. in, uh, in Bloomfield, Connecticut. And then I opened up my second one in downtown Hartford. And um, my mother said, if you're going to keep using my recipes, you better put my name on the building. 
How did you how did you figure out that first menu? You know what? So growing up, my mom was an unbelievable cook. She was ahead of her time. I remember my friends would come over and my mother would do grilled octopus. And they'd be like, oh, you guys are like the Adams family. You know, like they didn't understand. You know, um, Ericot Baird's, uh, the broccoli, uh, broccoli, uh, broccolini, um, bro uh, broccoli rabe, I should say. Yeah. My mom used to have me hold um, a rabbit. She would skin it in front of me. I'm like four years old holding onto this rabbit for dear life. Wow. And now, you know, if you go to Le Cirque, you go to these fancy schmancy restaurants, you got rabbit on the menu for $125. Right. So I yeah. grew up in that atmosphere. So right. for me, opening up uh, a restaurant in Hartford, I basically took all my mom's recipes. So that's why she said, if you're gonna keep stealing recipes, so I named it Dolce after my mother. Uh, sweet. And the first one was Blue Smoke. And then how did you, uh, how did you get into kind of the partnership and uh, the whole Beachy clan? How did you get into that? So when, uh, when I started expanding to New York, I started expanding under the nightclub business. I love nightclubs, right? And the thing I like about nightclubs is nobody really complains in a nightclub. You know, you don't have anybody coming up to you telling you the music's a little bit too loud, it's too dark in here. You know, if they complain, we throw them out. Give them the bums rush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, like they, they, they don't dare com uh, com uh, complain about anything. So that's how I started getting involved with Roberto and his family, and I started building their restaurants. That's really cool. Yeah. So this is, so we went, what did you major in in college? Cause you said it's so different from what you were. Uh... I majored in marketing. In marketing. Oh, that's good. That's good. And, and when you, but and forgive me, I'm, I be a little remedial here. So if you're in construction, you gotta have a crew, right? You gotta have people that you can trust. You gotta, and I would imagine that that transfers to the restaurant business so that your people skills and the need to have a good team around you. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was in college, I did an internship for a gentleman called David Chase, who was a huge developer. He's actually the Polish ambassador to the United States. And during my internship in college, I learned, well, I married, I married um, a, a Polish woman. We're divorced now, but her last name was Wachewski. So I know a lot about the Polish uh, community and, um, you know, traditions. So I learned everything I could. Uh, from meeting the different tradesmen, from you know getting my license as a general contractor. I did everything through him when I was in school. When I graduated, I felt like I really could do this on my own. So I built my first home. I had no money, so I had to go to a loan shark wow. to borrow the money to be able to build uh, land. And I did a modular home, which a modular home comes in two pieces and then you seam it together. Well, these companies would get screwed so often that you would literally have to have the money on hand as soon as it arrived. So the modular company shows up, Mr. Edward K shows up with his brief, briefcase, a tipped hat, the stogie, just like you see in the movies, right? Pops open his briefcase, and we're counting out $27,000 on the hood of this Cadillac. Oh my God. Yeah, and it was just it's how I started. So I built this spec house, I sold it. It was my first one in Wethersfield, Connecticut. I made so much money that from there, I kept going. And, uh, that's how so in building- it's like American dream, kind of. Yeah, American, uh, I've, I've had the American dream. I've also had the American pitfall. You know, we hit our hard times in 2008 when the market crashed. You know, we're going through some difficulties right now. But the benefit with me and Beach and Roberto and the Beach family as my partners is when I build our restaurants, there's no over budget. You know, you don't have to worry about it not being done. You don't have to worry about people leaning the property. 
I'm a partner, so obviously it's going to come in on time, under budget, and we're not going to have to worry about suing. Right, right. It's a big bonus to have somebody that has my expertise in building restaurants on uh, on staff. So. Building them, but then running them and, and managing them and creating an experience. Do you, is there a philosophy that you like to bring into any of your endeavors, any restaurant? You're in Beachy right now, but I know, again, nightclubs and other, I think I, think I heard when we spoke uh, last week, uh, you've had 40 different operations at different times, right? Yeah, so to- technically right now we have uh, 40 locations as, uh, as the BJ brand, and there's a couple of uh, off-brand names like the Bistro Milano and uh, Cafe Med. Um, but the thing about the restaurant business is it's a lot like construction, right? Because first you have to build it from nothing, and you have to assemble your team. It would be a lot easier for me just to build it and walk away, but that's not my specialty. So my specialty is for building it. Then it's for staffing it, for hiring the key uh, staff. And then I stay there usually a year to make sure that it's running efficiently, making sure we're hitting our numbers, making sure our costs are in line. And then if another project comes up, then I move to that project, build it, staff it, hire. And once it's ready and it's operating on its own, then you hire a GM to take your place. New York is my home base. I love New York City. So if I, I, I was in Miami for a few years, we built a beach on Ocean Drive. So that's what I did. I had to build it, staff it. And then once it was running successfully on its own, I came back to New York City. But New York City is my base and I operate out of the beach here in Midtown. Well, we're talking with Peter Guimaraes or Guimaraes if you uh, are Portuguese or something. But uh, we're talking about the restaurant business. Uh, Biche Cucina and the brand, the 40 different locations. Um, and have you corrected everything that we got wrong in the first part? I just want to make sure before we take another break. You guys are uh, perfect. I just have to make sure I don't want to offend any of my No, I don't want to. No, we're not looking to offend anybody uh, except for the people we look to offend. Especially, and especially not Italian families. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're talking with Peter Gomez. You're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolov. We're coming to you on 88.3 WLIWFM, Long Island's only NPR station. You can also stream us online at WLIWFM.org. We'll be right back after this. Hi, this is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to 88.3 WLIW-FM, Long Island's only NPR station. Beans boil in the pot, I'm dancing from room to room. The sun is setting in the air is hot, Sundays on the East End. This is Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolo. And we're speaking with our guest, Peter Guimaraes, a restaurateur, an entrepreneur, an impresario, running for mayor of New York City, and a real... A New Yorker's New Yorker. A New Yorker's New Yorker, and also a real, I don't know what to say, a real husband, a real housewife husband. Anyway, but we were talking, and, and uh, you, you, we were talking about family, and you have some 
uh, tragedy. Yeah, so, you know, we, we all have tragedies. And just to back up a little bit, I was not a New York City husband. Oh, okay. Uh, the girls on the show were partners and ventures of mine I had. I have a Pepsi Girl wine, a Prosecco and a Rosé, and we had a bar in Tribeca called AOA. Oh, okay. So Ramona Singer and Sonia got involved with me. So we were business partners, never any communal, nothing. Oh, you weren't a, you weren't a husband? Oh. I was not a New York City housewife husband. Tipsy, tipsy Girl is, is a, a very catchy name. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, we're doing really well. We were on the show. We, were, we would battle Bethany Frankel, which owns uh, Skinny Girl. So it was the highest rating show when Tipsy Girl was battling Skinny Girl. So oh, I had a lot wow. of fun on the show. But, you know, to answer your question, yeah, I mean, we've all had hard times, right? Yeah. A lot of people are going through hard times right now with this COVID, losing family members, losing restaurants. I know so many guys whose dream was to own restaurants in New York City, and um, they've had to close them down. It's like losing a member of your family. It's the saddest thing. I mean, I've opened up restaurants. I've also closed them when certain locations didn't do well. And to answer your question, yeah, in 2008, when the market crashed, I had two restaurants in Connecticut. Uh, one of them was in downtown Hartford. Not only did we lose the Hartford Whalers, which was the number one draw to downtown, when they left, it was nothing to do, but also the market crashed. You know, people were jumping out of windows and killing themselves. I was heavily invested in the market and I, I lost everything to the point where I had to move in with my parents. You know, I didn't have a dollar to my name just trying to keep the restaurants alive. But the one thing I did have, I had this beautiful watch. And when I, when I first started making money, you know, first thing you want to do is you want to buy yourself a nice watch. So I go to the store, buy myself a nice watch. The woman's looking at me. I'm wearing a baseball cap, not really taking me too much serious. And I happened to pick, you know, very expensive watch in, in the case, pay for it, took it home. And it was always my favorite watch, you know, that kind of made me feel like, you know, I, I deserve to have nice things. I worked really hard. I didn't steal. I didn't beg. I didn't borrow. So why not treat myself? Well, in 2008, when the market crashed, you know, you could, there's never enough money, right? So I had to go to a pawn store to sell it and get some money so I can pay some bills and do what I needed to do, which hurt me very badly. So I handed the watch over the counter and got very little money for it and I was off on my way. Well, about two, three weeks later, my sister Lily, I have, my family still lives in Connecticut and my oldest sister basically runs everything for me. Um, if it wasn't for her, like my lights would be shut off because I hate opening up mail. She handles it. <laughs> I would have been divorced a lot sooner than I did, but she would always remember the anniversary and send roses. <laughs> She's been like a mother to me. She's actually uh, raised me because my parents were immigrants and they were working 24-7, seven days a week. So I was a young kid and my sister basically raised me. So she invited me to go out and meet her for drinks. And this was uh, maybe a couple of months before the holidays. So we get to a place to have a few drinks. You know, we're talking. She asks me how I'm feeling, blah, blah, blah. We sit down and she hands me this box, a gift wrap. And I said... I thought we weren't exchanging gifts this year. She goes, we're not. This is just uh, something for me to you. Consider it an, uh, just an early gift, but um, open it up. So I'm opening it up, and it's a watch. And then when I opened the case to the watch, I realized that this is my watch. Uh, Where did you get this watch? She goes, well, I happen to have a friend of mine who was in the pawn shop at the same time. Didn't say anything because you looked like you were embarrassed. You didn't want to... Uh, bring anything to his attention he saw the whole transaction and called me and told me about it 
I immediately went down there and I bought the wow, back. That's amazing. That's amazing. Now I'll tell you. So, you know, uh, in my personal journey, I was one of the original writers of the movie Toy Story, right? And that changed my life uh, at that period of time. Uh, about four months before that movie, I had to go to the porn uh, shop out in LA and hawk things so I could uh, get food. I know that that humility and, and a sense of shame with that, and and no, all kidding aside, uh, that uh, when when your knees get weak like that and you do stuff like that and it comes back to you, and karmically and it comes back with family, uh, I mean, if that's not a life lesson, I don't know what is. You know, it was, it was very touching. To this day, I still you know I get a little. Um, I get a little vibrato in my voice when I tell the story, and I usually tend to tear up a little yeah. bit. But it was just an exceptional thing that she did, and it wasn't a it wasn't a cheap watch to buy back. So, to this day, I never take this watch off. Like, can I go out and buy another watch? Yeah, absolutely. But I don't because this watch has special meaning to me. I also want to go back, and while we're on the subject of poignant, kind of touching. Um events you you also uh you lost your father didn't you i did i lost my dad at an early age my father was part of a sense of violence in the streets of hartford he was shot to death and uh yeah how how old old were you i was uh 22 going on 23 at the time right around there wow so you just out of college you work in construction i would imagine you work in building yeah i also had some video stores i kind of had a lot right so I owned a bunch of video stores back in the day because the market was getting tough and I was lucky to be bought up by Blockbuster just when wow. the video started. That is good timing right there. Yeah. And there there's, there's something you don't hear about that often anymore. But. The only good timing I've ever had in my life. <laughs> yeah, my, my pop my pop passed the cancer when I was 29. My brother was 22. Yeah, no, but I, it's, it's a real shock. And I know for me, it was a, um, it took a while, but it was the moment where I really became a man because it was the moment where I had to now carry the freight uh, emotionally and with stability and stuff. What was it like for you? You're 22, I mean, you're a baby. And losing your father to, to, to gun violence. I mean, did it, did it um, awaken something in you? Yeah, I, um, it, it was a, it was it was a big shock. And the thing with my dad is, my dad was uh, you know the provider for the family. His mother, my grandmother, came over to this country, so he was also taking care of his mom, who lived with me, and my mother. And we had two sisters. We still have two sisters. So we were all in shock. You know, I mean, we were never we were never part of any any violence. And to get a call telling you that run to the hospital because your father's been shot, you're kind of numb, right? And then when you get there, you realize that this, this is your worst nightmare. You know, and the family's all huddled in the room and he was in surgery. And when they come into the room and they tell you, I'm sorry, I just remember just, you know, everybody just collapsed. We were, we were very hurt and devastated. And it's something that always stays with you. And what was more difficult at that time is growing up in a, an old world European family, you're not very close to your father, you know? You're always fearing your father. He comes home, you're wondering, oh, what the hell am I gonna get in trouble for today, right? As we start having things in common, like owning businesses together, um, helping each other out, you know, 
I'm basically a man at that point, right? So we can have dinner together. We can talk about stuff, talk about girls, talk about business. Just when I was starting to be comfortable with my dad and actually having a friendship with him, he gets snuffed out of life. So that's what hurt the most. You know, maybe when I was younger and we weren't so close and I feared him, maybe the pain wouldn't have been as hard as it was. But just the timing of it all, just when I'm starting to get close to, you know, the man that I idolized. But I, I never heard my father say, I love you. I never heard my father, you know, give me a hug. They just yeah. didn't do those and, things. And, and, and so, you know, uh, so this, I mean, cataclysmic event, this, 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 this event happens. Has it informed you or changed your journey? Like, like when, I, when I hear your story, you're so entrepreneurial. It's so admirable to know that, that, that you can make that leap into the darkness on, on an idea and somehow figure it out. Was that always your personality or did somehow this event, this life-changing event, uh, change you as well? Well, you know, it, it, it actually got darker after that, right? Having your father die in the hospital is catastrophic. But then the, what led after that was even worse. My father owned an import-ex company, import-export. He would import from uh, Italy. He would import from Portugal, China. And he had a little retail store in Hartford called Lily's Imports, named after my, my sister. So my mom begged me to keep his dream alive, you know, keep the store alive. But I really wasn't involved in his day-to-day, -day, so I had no idea. How, how much trouble he was in, how bad the store was doing. So I threw myself into this store trying to save it. I moved it into a better neighborhood because the neighborhood he was in was a little rough. My sister Lily came and worked for me and I tried to do everything I could and I just couldn't save it. It was too, too much into debt. So, you know, it, it was a double jeopardy death. Yes, you, you had a lot of dad baggage as, as we all kind of do at, at some point. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, then you have the guilt of not being able to, you know, save the, the business in his, uh, in his memory. But I think everything happens for a reason. But I was always very, um, you know, I, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family, right? I've never had a job. I had an internship. Uh, so, you know, we were always trying to come up with stuff. When I was a young kid, we started a full, the, uh, the first poll boost on our street. Um, people say, what do you mean you started a toll booth? Well, we lived in a street that would get very busy because it ran parallel to a main avenue to go from Hartford to Wethersfield. We'd be playing in the street, playing football, and all these cars would interrupt our game. So I said, you know what? If you want to come through our street to avoid the traffic, you're going to have to start paying for this. So we would line up our Huffy bikes in the middle of the street so cars would have to stop. You were shaking and down? We were, you were just shaking down innocent people? <laughs> it was called a toll booth. We would ask you to roll down your window, and we'd say, if you want to come through Grandview Terrace in Hartford, it's going to be a dollar. <laughs> and people would give us a dollar, and we'd move the Huffy bikes, and they would go on their way. So at an early age, I already knew I wanted to do stuff for myself. That's amazing. And, and we want to take the leap to uh, your, your throwing your, your baseball cap in the ring of, of the mayoral elections that are coming up right so everybody keeps asking me are you crazy you have such a nice life you know you're in the restaurant business you get to dress in a, in a nice clothes you have beautiful women coming and hanging out at your restaurant why would you want to throw yourself into such a such a rough uh underhanded business that comes with politics and i have to be honest with you i never in a million years wanted to be a mayor or a governor or a senator i wanted nothing to do with politics except feed the politicians that come into the restaurant 
but I'm a New Yorker. I love the city. I've been sticking into the city from the time I was 15, 16 years old. The way the city, the state it's in right now, I can no longer sit behind. Um, I, I need to do something. And one day I was frustrated sitting at my bar talking about all the issues and I had a senator sitting at the bar where I'm gonna leave the person's name out. And he said to me, stop complaining and do something about it. I said, what am I gonna do? I said, I'm a restaurateur. So what, what possibly could I do? He goes, you know, the current mayor that was there had no experience either and people elected him. I would vote for you if you ran because I know your drive, I know your dedication to the city, I know your business sense, this city could actually use somebody like you. So from that day, I thought about it, and I said, why not me? So I threw my hat into the ring. Right. And, 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 and what, what does it actually, like step by step, what does it entail when you decide to, to run for a Well, mayor? so you need to have uh, 3,000 plus signatures to legally qualify to get into the, uh, to get into the mm -hmm. ring. And then from there, you got to start raising money. You know, it's very expensive to run. Uh, they say the, the minimum to run for New York City mayor is going to be about 4 or $5 million. Wow. So I have to raise money to do that. And it shouldn't be too difficult because, you know, we fed the affluent of New York City and around the world for many years here at Beachy. So I'm hoping that those people that are true New Yorkers who are now living in Palm Beach because they don't want to live in uh, Midtown or in... Um, in New York City because of all the turmoil that's going on. I'm hoping these people step up and help me. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so take some steps. I, I want to visit the boroughs. I have to start doing the, it's called the stump, where you go into talking to these different boroughs, not just Manhattan where I was uh, raised up in, for lack of better words, but you know, Brooklyn, Harlem, the Bronx, Staten Island. You need to visit all these uh, boroughs and find out what's going on. One common thing that all these boroughs have in common is they're struggling. The, the certain laws and legislation and, and idealism that was done by the current administration has really not helped anybody. It's, it's taken us back into the late 90s when Manhattan really wasn't Manhattan. Right, and, and uh, is there, and this is not an area that I'm very well versed in, so forgive me uh, if I misstate this, but is there a one big domino that fell or was this really like a cancer that just kind of grew gradually uh like in your mind how do you how do you attack it and and where where did it uh necessarily start because again like both bridget and i are are born and raised uh new yorkers and i you know i we can remember the 70s when the, when the city was a little bit uh you know shady a little rough uh, and then you see the city turn around in the late 80s and in, in the early 90s. And uh, I, is this, it, I don't even know what I'm trying to ask you. But I don't know what you're trying to say either, Sock. <laughs> I, I know what you're trying to ask me. At what point, uh, you know, why didn't I decide this four years ago? Why didn't I decide this six years ago? So why not? So in every trauma, in any catastrophe, you always have to look at some bright side of it, right? You're just gonna go crazy. So as bad as COVID has been, if one thing COVID has taught us is don't take things for granted, right? I remember right. when I first opened up again after being closed six months, I said to myself, I'm even gonna be nice to my pain in the ass customers. I will never ever, be sad or upset. I just want the place to fill up again with people, you know, so you're looking forward to this. And we also realize that 
we don't like being out without people, right? You go to a restaurant, there's two people, they're six feet apart. You know how many years we've been complaining about how close the tables in New York were? Now we're complaining the tables are too far away. So we've learned something, right? That we need people, we need the human touch, we we need the buzzing in the restaurants, we need the buzzing in the clubs, and it just makes everything more exciting, right? So. COVID brought that to the forefront. And I started paying a lot more attention to the smaller picture. And in the smaller picture, I started seeing the homeless population was up. The streets were filled with garbage. The, the corners of uh, barrels were filled to the brim, not being empty. Where the violence is up 500% in Midtown alone. Chief of Police is a good friend of mine. He gives me these statistics. The statistics are alarming. So. If COVID hadn't happened and everything was status quo and the restaurants were full, maybe I wouldn't have time on my hand to realize what's going on in the city. So I think COVID brought that part of the city's attention to me. And now it's, I'm like a dog with a bone. Right. The more I dig now, we have $850 million missing in budgets. Uh, we've had police budgets cut, the crime is up. We've had sanitation budgets uh, cut, so now the, the uncleansiness of the city's up. You know, for every rhyme, there's a reason, and now I'm passionate about it. Now that I've seen what's going on in the city, I have to fix it, I have to change it. And without COVID, maybe I would have been too busy. Well, listen, let's take a, a little short break again. When we come back, I really want to hear more about your particular platform because I'm sure everybody wants change or else they wouldn't be running. I want to know what makes your platform different, but we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolov. And our guest, Peter Guimaras, who is the uh, proprietor and co-partner of Biche Cucina and all of those associated brands, and is running for mayor of New York City. We'll be right back after this. Now we go into the city, oh, kiss going to the city, oh, no. Everybody's there, everybody's cozy as a cat. I'm just going to jump out for some fresh air. We're back. Sunday's on the East End. We're speaking with Peter Guimaras, uh, talking about his mayoral platform for New York City. So, Peter, do you want to elaborate a little more on what makes your particular platform different than, than the other people? who are? Because there's like a dozen people right now who are in the ring, right? There is. Uh, most of them are from uh, the current administration. Uh, most of them are um, lifelong politics. You know, they, they want to be a mayor, then they want to be a governor, then they want to be a senator. You know, this is in their blood. This is what they want to right. do. I'm the only one running right now that really had no uh, aspiration to be political. My aspiration is to fix New York City. That's all I want to do. And if I am lucky enough to be elected by the great people of New York and my term is up and the city is running beautifully and the next guy coming in line is going to keep the tradition going, I'm done. I'm out. I'm going to go back to sitting at my bar having a little bit of uh, Pinot Grigio and telling stories about the old days. But right now, I cannot sit at my bar and consciously sit there the way that the city is being run. You know, I meet a lot of people in the course of the month, right? Everybody that comes to my restaurant, everybody has an opinion. The one thing I hear is how the city doesn't feel like New York City anymore, right? You don't hear people say, I love New York City anymore. You know, nobody's really proud of it. People now talk about it like it's dead and it's gone and everybody's leaving the city, which is not true, but that's the public uh, perspective out there. And I- um, the Is that all, I'm, I'm sorry, is that all due to COVID or, or do you think that feeling was around even before COVID hit? So 
the feeling was already there, but I think COVID made people more aware of it, right? Because not having a job, uh, not being able to go out. So what do you start doing? You start picking up the paper, you start going online, you start getting in touch with what's going on. And then you start to realize how many problems the city has. The three major problems that I speak to, and that would be the first three things I would want to address, because the other issues that are wrong with the city are going to take time. They're not an easy fix. But the three major issues, not to say easy, but they're fixable pretty quickly to get people to respect you and to people to trust you and to say, the guy is making a difference. They are the homeless. The homeless situation needs to be addressed. And it's not an easy fix, but it's fixable. The problem right now is the shelters that we have are not equipped to deal with the psychological and the medical issues that the homeless have. We need to revamp our, our social system for the homeless. Number two, the garbage, everybody complains. We have garbage that line up the city streets in New York City. This is an easy fix. Why are we allowing store owners, um, building owners, to put their garbage out so early when they're not getting picked up until after midnight? They do this out of laziness because during the day they have enough staff and at midnight you bring in the graveyard staff and you don't have enough people to put the garbage out. I become mayor, she's got to slap a law. And the law is no garbage on the city streets until after midnight. And if you do, you get a fine. Easy fix. You put the street, you put the garbage out after midnight. You have the garbage haulers come in after midnight. Take it out of the city. Why do we need to walk around with our kids, children, and tours and go through avenues and avenues of garbage? We have these 1935 garbage cans that hold 40 gallons on the corner every 10 blocks. How come we don't have enclosed units, the heavy ones like I do in Connecticut, for recycling garbage? So they can't be picked up by the homeless. So they can't be picked up by drunken revelers and thrown into the street. Just a little bit of technology. Let's get bigger, more advanced garbage cans. Crime. You don't see cops anymore because the cops don't have the respect for the current administration. They don't want to put themselves in harm ways because nobody's backing them up. We've eliminated 5,000 cop jobs in the city, and a lot of them have taken early retirement because they don't want to be in this uncompromising situation. Let's get cops back on the street. When I was young, you would see cops walking the beat. Why don't we have cops walking the beat? Let them get to know the, the hotel owners, the hotel workers. Let them get to know the, your shopkeepers, your restaurant guys. If you're patrolling the neighborhood where everybody knows you, you're less likely to be a bad cop, right? right. You're more likely to take interest in your neighborhood. So those are the three fixes that need to be done right away. And then there's major ones, but the major ones are gonna take some time and it's gonna take the trust of the people that you're gonna need behind you to initiate those, those changes. So that's just a small little taste of my platform. That's good. Uh, when, when is the, I mean, I don't mean to sound like I'm in the dark, but being out here on the East End, when are the elections? So after December, after the New Year's, when we really start pushing our campaign, right? We start addressing uh, the fundraisers. But again, I'm in a catch-22 right now. How can I hold a fundraiser during COVID? What am I going to do? Invite 10 people? <laughs> Everybody's going to have to bring a million dollars if I'm going to hit my budget, right? Well, it's like if you invite the right 10 people, you know. Yeah, yeah but those right 10 people are far and, far and few between now. But, you yeah. know, COVID makes it difficult to raise money to have these fundraisers. Then in the springtime, there's going to be uh, debates. And then you have your uh, preliminary... Um, your preliminary elections, right? You have the Democrats who are going to have to debate and then they'll have to pick one and then the Republican, they'll have their debate and then they pick one. And then in November, end of November is the elections for mayor. 
and then December 31st would be the last day of the current mayor, and then January 1st, the new mayor comes in. And and uh, are are you running uh, with a, a party affiliation? Or are you running as an independent? So you know, I wanted to. So you know, it always it always comes down to the the bottom dollar, right? And unfortunately, there's things in life you need to do because you need to you need to have the money for it. I wanted to run as a dependent, um, as an independent, I should say, because I really don't believe totally in the Democratic Party. I don't believe totally in the Republican Party. The problem is there's no money for an independent runner, right? There's no coffers. There's nobody who's going to want to support you. I'm not a Bloomberg, right? <laughs> so if you're a Bloomberg, you can run any kind of party. Right. So I have to choose Republican Party because I can get some support. But if you were to label me, I'd probably be more of a, a conservative Republican. Conservative Democrat, you mean? Or you're not a conservative uh, Republican? I'm more so... I am conservative, yeah, but I'm also running as Republican. Okay, okay gotcha, right, right, gotcha. But, but yeah, and, and and I think there is a tradition in in New York, both the city and the state, of of you know uh, uh, people uh, making the prudent choices to to see the best path towards election. Bloomberg did that. Uh, Hillary Clinton did that when she ran for senator. You know, so it's it's. Uh, it's a savvy thing to be able to look at the playing field and, and figure out what gives you the best shot of having a platform. Yeah, uh, fortunately, it, it, you know, it's, a, it's a business decision, right? It's a, a strategic move. Right now, the Democratic field is so full. There's 14, 15 uh, candidates on there, all uh, you know, people that are on um, the current mayor's administration right now. Yeah. I, would, I would probably just get lost in the shuffle there. We're, people running for Republican because nobody believes a Republican can win in New York City, right? That's why people don't try to run as a Republican. Right. But I think business-wise makes sense for me. And do you have, like, what what talents uh, from the restaurant game do you think will transfer into public I think running running an administration is like running a restaurant <laughs> to a certain extent. Yeah, so, you know, you're only as good as your staff is in the restaurant, right? I'm not back there cooking. I'm not really cleaning. Um, you know, I'm supervising everybody's intricate role in the restaurant. Basically what running the city takes, right? You, the mayor, let's, let's be honest, you got all these boroughs, millions of people, how much can one guy do, right? So he has to delegate authority and he has to pick the right people to oversee the, the needs of the people of New York City. I've had that experience my whole life. I've been hiring people since I was 18 years old, you know? So I think I have a lot of experience when it comes to hiring the right people and overseeing it. In the restaurant business, you have to hire floor managers. You have to hire managers. You have to hire general managers. And I kind of think that the way it's set up for our night too, it's very difficult. How can one guy take care of five boroughs? So I would like to be able to implement policy where you know, maybe we have just a little bit more responsibility from uh, a, a yeah. lieutenant governor, a lieutenant mayor, or you put, you know, presidential, um, borough presidents, uh, give them a little bit more responsibility in overseeing their district. But I think my being in business for myself, I think I'm the only candidate running that's employed people, right? I mean, I've employed people from my family business, from my construction business to the current beaches that we're in right now. So I know a lot about the hiring process and getting things to work. And no business is more difficult than the restaurant business. We have a 90% failure rate. Yeah. 
Exactly. And restaurant and rest, and also restaurant uh, employees are somewhat journeymen. They kind of go from job to job. So if you can retain a chef or a, a sous chef or a garde manger or a dishwasher for any length of time, that shows that you're running your business. Most of my, uh, my present BJ in Midtown, we have one in Soho and we have one in Chelsea, which we haven't opened up yet because of COVID. But the one in Midtown that is open, I have um, one gentleman who's been with us for 33 years and he tells us, uh, he tells our patrons this all the time they're amazed i have a gen- another gentleman that's been with us for 18 years our chef's been with us for 22 years he opens up different restaurants so when somebody comes and works for us they stay for a long time and the reason is one they make good money to take care of their family two we treat them like family you know on a busy night i'm over there busting tables with my staff and this is why they stay they know that this is a family environment you're going to take care of them and we're going to take care of each other and this is what we to do in new york it- city so if I walk into Biche uh, and, and I do what my dad always did when he took me to restaurants around the world and I say, bring me your best dish, your favorite dish. What's your favorite dish? That, that's a tough one because, you know, I, I, I go through cravings, right? Because I eat in the restaurant a big uh, part of my life. But it, it depends on the week. If it's pulled out of, you know, I like the comfort food. One of my favorite dishes here is the lobster tagalini fresh lobster with tagalini, three different types of mushrooms and a bisque sauce. I love that. But if it's summertime and it's cold out, I mean, it's uh, hot, uh, hot out, I don't feel like having that comfort food. So then my favorite food would probably be our octopus carpaccio, which is with arugula and cherry tomatoes drizzled with some um, virgin olive oil and balsamic drops. It's absolutely amazing. So it depends what that's the type of year is. And now we have a pizza, which we're the first to bring it to New York. It's made with rice flour. And it's a lot bubblier, crispier, less cows, less oil, less fat. And we have a shrimp uh, pizza. I can probably eat it three, four times a day, uh, a week, not a day. I sound like a Gavon. You would have loved my dad, Peter, because he he would go in. I mean, sometimes we'd go into a restaurant, you know, where they just have like a you know a one sheet menu, and he'd just say, "Bring me one of everything." <laughs> yeah, I know. when I dine out, I very rarely order an entree. What I'll do is I'll get some small apps, and then we get a couple of entrees and we split it all sure. because I I don't want to commit to one thing. Maybe I have a commitment problem. I don't know. <laughs> but I like to try a bunch of little things off the menu. That's yeah. that's how you test a restaurant, right? Because anybody could be good at a one hit wonder. But if you try four or five different little items and they're all great, you kind of know these people know what they're exactly. doing. Exactly. That's great. Right. And, and and I I would also. Add, and I've, I've thought this for a while with, with uh, writing and with, with uh, the art world uh, or, or the entertainment world. You know, everybody has a story to tell, uh, but what talent really is, is the ability to do something at a high level over a period of time. And, and so that, that it, and without disrespecting anyone's story, that, that's a different muscle that gets used to be able to repeat success, to be able to repeat something then you build up a whole it's a philosophy really you build up a process of success which it sounds like uh you you've managed to do many times in your career yeah you know and uh you also need to reinvent yourself right i mean constantly if you only know one thing and something like covid happens and it eliminates that one thing you need to reinvent yourself you need to get back out there and maybe come up with something else we've been lucky where our food has tested the travels of time. Our recipes still date back to 1926. 
we're not an infusion restaurant. You know, remember about 10 years ago, everybody was into the infusion stuff. Well, most of those restaurants are closed today, right? right? Your, your traditional old-fashioned recipes, people still long for them. They crave for it. If you can't pronounce an ingredient, you're not going to see it on our menu. <laughs> Peter, if people want to find uh, you or, or a Biche, where, where is there a website? So since we've had the popularity of being, you know, across the country and all over the United States, if you just Google Biche, which is B-I-C-E, everything will pop up. You'll have dozens and dozens of pages. It'll, it will navigate you to our website. If you just Google my name, unfortunately, I have 25 pages of Googles from the housewife show and the tipsy girl and back in the sound factory days. So I'm, I'm very easy to find. Unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Peter, it's been really wonderful to have you on as a guest. We really appreciate you spending time. Alec, do you have any last words? Yeah, you know, uh, thanks everybody for listening. Peter, thank you for giving us the time and coming on. Um, I, I'll tell you what, like I, I stand in awe of, of anybody that can kind of navigate life with all of the, the twists and turns and, and make things and create things. And, uh, you know, uh, it sounds like from the time uh, Peter was, was a young uh, uh, man, uh, he had the ability to take that leap of faith that he can make something work. He can do it, and he learns along the way. So I hope that everybody can hear this and, uh, you know, obviously wear your masks, you know, be responsible, but realize that, like, our lives are all about experience. Our lives are, you know, kind of risk and reward. And that it, you got to take a leap if you want to uh, succeed. And uh, I, I, I also just think uh, as we um, are pushing into the holidays, you know, just really everybody enjoy themselves and don't forget to uh, be, have gratitude for all the things we still have. It will get better. It will get better. I totally agree. Well said. Thank you so much for your time. And um, happy holidays. Stay safe. Love one another. And when you're in town, please visit me at BJ. Absolutely. Or uh, downtown in the mayor's office next year. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> hey, if, the, if, if you become mayor and you need a comedy writer, I'm your guy. Oh, you know what? You walk <laughs> around the streets of New York, you find comedy everywhere. Especially <laughs> <laughs> Well, everybody, be well and stay well. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. Walk right in, it's around the back.